0: Good morning. You cannot imagine how I have agonized over my title, and that lackluster title that is before you is the poorest. One of the ones I was toying with was Laodicea, barf or banquet? (laughs) And you know, my friend, that is not far from the message uh, of this text. But we'll stay with the one with finesse, because, of course, that it's much more appropriate. This is Lesson 10, uh, and we are focusing on the church at Laodicea, and uh, I must warn you, I was planning on one more message, but I'm actually going to merge a second pass at this text and an overview of the other six churches and the message as a whole to these seven churches in the message next week, Lord willing. Now you'll see some pictures uh, scrolling by uh, that Kevin's going to do for you that are related to Laodicea, as I give you some facts uh, about that city. One of the things that you will notice about that uh, a city when you or or where you the ruins of the city as you look on the screen is it is a barren, forsaken. It is like a wrecking yard in the middle of a desert. There's just Nothing there except ruins, uh, as you'll see in a couple of those pictures. Uh, Laodicea was at the uh, junction of two major uh, highways or trade routes. It was uh, destroyed a couple of times by earthquakes. The second one was especially interesting, uh, some would say, because in 60 AD when the city was leveled, uh, they rebuilt the city on their own without Federal funds, uh, meaning Rome's uh, deep pockets. Um, When you look uh, at this city, it was one of the chief cities in the southern region of Phrygia. and, And just six miles to the north was Hierapolis, and ten miles south was the city of Colossae. So it's not surprising when Paul writes to the Colossians that he says to them that they ought to pass the epistle on to the Laodiceans as well. It was a very prosperous city, we are told. It was a military outpost. They apparently had lots of of grazing for sheep, and so there was the uh, production of wool and related to that was a garment uh, industry. It was a banking center that uh, that brought prosperity uh, and wealth to the city, and it was also a medical center. There was the production, for example, of a powder that was made into a poultice that was at least allegedly helpful in the treatment of eye uh, dis- disorders. Now, next week, I might as well warn you now. Next week, I'm going to put a big red X through the next scene, I think. Where, where the next, yeah, that one. That was it, Kevin. I'm going to put a big red X through almost all of that. Because I have this fetish about finding uh, somehow extra biblical data as the key to the interpretation of the Bible. I just, just, I just have this problem. And so anything on that list that isn't in the text, in my opinion, is isn't really that important. I just told you that because everybody else does. But I'm going to tell you, I don't think it is the key to the interpretation of this text. Uh, but it is where everybody goes. And I, I think that's a problem. Okay, let's talk about the description of our Lord Jesus Christ. I was summoned to court this week. And it was a a, a criminal court. And the charge... Was aggravated robbery fortunately it wasn 't me that was on the defense seat that I was one of the jury panels and I, and I must say to you there was that was the biggest group i 've ever been in as a jury panel when they were weeding people out for this case. I thought to myself, This is not a littering case that we 're going to go here well as usual, I got rejected. Just put the word preacher down uh, and bring your rope with you, and, and it's all over in the in the courtroom. There is one form of rejection I have learned to deal with with a smile. So I went on my way home in the afternoon. But something very interesting was said that, that gave me some insight on this text. It was the prosecutor who said... There have been allegations that have been made uh, against this particular defendant, but there has been no evidence presented yet. Therefore, you cannot reach any conclusion before the trial has actually begun because there is no evidence. And the only evidence you will hear is evidence that is presented by witnesses. And therefore, as you hear these witnesses, you have to decide, how credible is this witness and do I believe the testimony that they offer in this case? Well, you can imagine when I came to this text and I see the introduction and it is telling us the credentials of our Lord Jesus Christ as a witness, I think we better believe this witness, had we not? And I deliberately reversed the order that that they are uh, that, that the statements are made, and I put faithful and true uh, first because I'm going to spend more time on the on the Amen uh, side if I can. But he is the faithful and the true witness. It is interesting that um, Antipas in chapter two and verse thirteen is referred to as the faithful witness, and you will remember that he was the witness who gave his life for his testimony. But it's also true that in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11, the expression faithful and true is used, and this time it is used of our Lord Jesus. It says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. I was thinking about this in the light of the fact, and you see this in John chapter 8, remember with the woman that was taken in the act of adultery and she's brought before our Lord. And Jesus says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. In the Old Testament, it was the witnesses that cast the first stones, was it not? The witnesses gave their testimony, but they had to participate. In fact, they had to lead in the outcome that their testimony led to. So if they were lying on the witness stand and the and the offense was a capital offense, they were guilty of murder. Uh, for what they did. So our Lord Jesus is the faithful and true witness in chapter 19, and he is now going to wage war. He is going to bring justice in righteousness. He is the one who has the right to pronounce judgment and to execute judgment because he is the witness who is faithful and true. But the first statement that is made of him is that he is the amen. Amen. I'd rather have Larnell Harris explain this to you this morning by singing about it, because I get all excited about that song. But let's talk about Amen in the Bible. It is most prominent in the New Testament in the Gospels. And the Gospel of John, for instance, it is found 50 times. It's also interesting. I think it's thirty-some times in the Gospel of Matthew, but in Matthew's Gospel, it will be. It's often verily or truly, uh, but but this is the word that is used, and, and so in Matthew's Gospel, it's usually truly I say to you. In John's Gospel, it is truly, truly. I say to you. So very often in John's gospel, it's repeated. He gets his numbers up that way. I'm sure that was the purpose for John, uh, recording it that way. But it's very prominent in the gospels in that way. And what it's doing is underscoring the veracity of the statement that is about to be made. It is saying, you need to listen. This is absolutely true statement. In the Old Testament, it was uh, the confirmation or the affirmation of a certain truth. The woman who was given the test for infidelity, remember where the dust from the ground was mixed in water and she had to drink it and, and, and she had to affirm to make an affirmation that she was innocent. If she was guilty, then of course, terrible physical things happened and that wasn't very good. But she affirmed. Certain, She swore, as it were, under oath about her condition. And it's also found in Deuteronomy 27 in those blessings and cursings. And after the pronouncement of the blessing or the cursing, the people were to say, amen. Yeah, that wouldn't be a Lorna L. Harris moment, by the way, (laughs) not in the cursing part, but you had to say it anyway. And it's interesting to me in every, notice the asterisk, in every New Testament book in the King James Version, it ends with the word Amen. Now, it's not true in, in, if you have a New American Standard, you have some others. Sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. The only exception to that is 3rd John in, in the, in the King James Version. Don't know why. But it seems to me, and this is just, this is just my uh, conjecture. It seems to me that A, the Lord either put those words there as the final testimony to the truth of everything that book said. I like that one. Or that the guys who were doing the manuscript said, hey, this is God's word. Somebody needs to say it. Amen. And they put it there. But I'm going for the first one. It's saying every Every book in that New Testament is indeed God's word, and we should be saying to it, amen. All right. It also follows every, or many, most, I guess I would say, statements of praise. So when you look at Romans chapter 9, verse 5, or 1136, when it's talking about God and speaking praise, then there's an amen after it, an affirmation. This is True, And I'm with it. You know, it isn't just it's academically true. You're casting your vote in a sense. You're making yourself identify with that statement. And then it's uh, very closely related to that is an affirmation of the truth of a particular statement. This is the kind of thing that you would be used to not so often in our church, although it happens, but in certain churches you'll hear a big amen every once in a while in the midst of, of uh, somebody uh, sharing or, or preaching. People say amen. What they're saying is, that's true, I believe it, I'm with you on this one, right? And, and when you get to First Corinthians chapter 14, Paul is talking about uh, spiritual gifts, and he's talking about the gift of tongues. And the fact that apart from being interpreted, it has no edification value for the body. And what he's saying is, how can somebody shout out, Amen! at the end of a tongue speaking that's uninterpreted? How can you say Amen to what you don't even know what was said? You can't. So there's this affirmation of a something that is true, and you believe it. Now, Isaiah 65, 16, I've got an asterisk by it because I want to come back to this. And it's another one of my fetishes. But, but my, I have this thing about the way in which New Testament writers use the Old Testament. One of them is they are so saturated in the Old Testament that they may use Old Testament um, language and expressions as a part of their, they're just their normal vocabulary. I'll never forget one time at, at uh, I think it was after Community Bible Chapel had started, and I, and I said the word God, and I actually, I shocked myself because I said it exactly like S. Lewis Johnson. And I thought to myself, where did that come from? I didn't say, I couldn't even do it if I wanted to. I couldn't have made myself imitate it. But I was so used to the way he said, God, I just spoke that way. And I think there are New Testament writers who were so used to the wording and the expressions and the patterns of thinking of the Old Testament, it just kind of oozes from them. Uh, And I think also that sometimes when an Old Testament expression is used... It's not just borrowing the language. It's actually reminding you of the uh, context. So, it, you know, in your... your uh, I don't have one, but the, in the Kindles and whatever, they tell me that there's a place to put a bookmark there. And that you can, in effect... Of course, we, I always do that in the books. You'll even <laughs> see it in the library books. Ron knows this. I try not to write big in the library books when I write. But if you notice... If you notice a check on the side, that's me. And, and, but there's, it's a way of, of finding something, and so you bookmark it. I believe that Isaiah 65, 16 is a bookmark. And it's not just calling attention to the one verse, which I'll read for you, but next week I'm going to suggest that the whole context of that verse is in the writer's mind Uh, in the Lord's mind as he speaks. It goes like this. uh, Because he who is blessed in the earth shall be blessed by the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth. I don't know why they do it, but nearly every translation translates it truth. It is the God of amen. It is the God of Amen. It's the we were talking about that, Patrick. It literally is the same Hebrew word that's just kind of transliterated into Greek, Amen, and we translate it into English. So if you said Amen in church, you know the Hebrews, the Greeks, and even us uh, folks in in the U.S. would understand what that's saying. So he's the God of the Amen in the sense that he affirms. Truth, and when he puts his good housekeeping seal of approval, his Amen on truth, it's set. It is, it is. assured. It is affirmed. He is also referred to as the originator. I think is the word that the NET Bible uses, um, and and the uh, uh, New American Standard says to us, it is he is the beginning. And notice the footmark over uh, footnote at the side says origin or source in other words he's not the first one created he is the first one in the sense that he is the creator of all all things like you would see in in john chapter one it is interesting however that when you look in the lexicons this whole idea of first you might say number one if you want that this whole idea of number one has a secondary meaning, and that is to rule. So when people go around, you know, football players or whatever, and they're going, we're number one, you know, what they're saying is, we rule. We rule. We're in charge. We're the best. We're the leaders. And so there is that secondary thought, and the reason I mention that is because... I believe that there is a connection in these epistles, these letters to these churches, between the description of our Lord at the beginning and the promises at the end. The promise at the end is that those who overcome will sit on thrones with him. If he's the one who rules, and he's introduced that way to us, and at the end we sit with him in rule, that draws this whole thing together. So at least I I make a connection in my mind between that sense of him being not only the source of creation, but the ruler of it. Oh, by the way, the New International Version, some of you might have it in your hands, it does it that way. The only translation in my major list of translations, but they actually say ruler as I remember. A Divine Diagnosis, verses 15 uh, through 17. I confess I was thinking to myself... This is the, the last church to be addressed as, the, you know, as this sequence of epistles is read. Everywhere this epistle was sent, it was read publicly, right? And so, in other words, the book of Revelation would come to a church, and, and in my, my perception, someone would stand and they would read the book of Revelation from front to rear. What that means is that when you got to the church at Laodicea, you had to have heard what our Lord said to each of those other churches before He speaks to you. And and I got to thinking about I, I just read through Esther, and so I was thinking about old Haman, and remember how the king couldn't sleep at night, and 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 he has the those. <laughs> <laughs> Those dusty old history books brought out. It was the ancient version of sleeping pills. Read the annals of history. That'll do it for you. So, you know, he puts, he, he hears this story about how uh, uh, Esther's uncle, Mordecai, had had reported on these two guys who were planning to kill the king and, and he asked the question of his servants, has anything been done to honor this man? And Haman at that moment in time Look like he was really on the rise of power and popularity. And so he's got a pretty big, pretty big head and he, he's thinking great thoughts about himself. And so when the king says to him, What should I do? What should the king do to honor a man who is, you know, really deserving of it? And Haman says to himself, Who could he be speaking of with me? Ooh. That's the feeling I get when I come to the book of, of, of Revelation and the church at Laodicea. Here's this church. Remember, this, this indictment of them is going to come as an absolute shocker. And, and so I, I'm, I'm supposing that they're thinking, oh, these poor churches over here, you know, whatever. <laughs> he saved the best for last. And, and then, and then what's the first word out of Jesus' mouth? Puke! Well, it's not the first, but it's right there in front, you know, and, I, and you're saying, wow! You know, this is a a shocker. I really think that's exactly what our Lord intended to do. These are complacent, smug, arrogant Christians, and they need a prod, not just some gentle word. And it is amazing. I'm already cheating about the word puke. Folks, it isn't spit you out of his mouth. I know the translations do that. That is not a literal translation. It is vomit. That's the literal translation. Everybody ducks it because it's yuck. That is the point. It is ugly and repulsive. And that's what our Lord wants people to see. I don't think that they can handle the picture of our Lord vomiting. But that is what he says. You make me sick to my stomach. That ought to wake somebody up. Okay. So he says, first of all, Symbolically, I know your deeds. You are neither hot or cold. And then goes on to say, "I would rather that you were hot or cold." Again, the New King James Net Bible translated it literally, and say, uh, "I would like, I would feel like vomiting you out of my mouth." the problem is with the word or it's one thing to say i would that you were hot not cold right then we could all lock onto that and say hot means you know spiritually you're on fire blah 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 and cold means you know you're a dead fish but he says i would rather you were hot or cold So it's the medium in between there that's the problem, not the extremes. Now, when you think about that, in the summer, every time it comes to summer, I always think wistfully of when it's going to get cold. And every time it gets cold in the winter, I think wistfully of when it's going to get hot. I remember Haddon Robinson said, it's like a guy with his head in the oven and his feet in the refrigerator. On the average, he was doing well. But the reality is, the middle is not good. It's it's a bad thing. And so the question becomes, how do we explain that? Okay, I put the historical answer first because it's the one that's going down in flames anyway. And i just kind of show you how it goes. I mean, nobody, nobody apart from from reading either archaeology or reading something would ever have come to this from a reading of this text by itself. So what they're saying is there's this wonderful historical uh, observation that's been made, and if we if I had, I don't want them to go back there, but if we went back to our pictures where you're going six miles north to Hierapolis, mountainous, in the hills, and if you went down to Colossae 10 miles, the story is told that this city, now by the way, it's not far from the river, so I haven't figured out why they have a water problem yet, but in the storyteller's minds, they were getting their water by aqueduct, either from uh, up north or wherever. And uh, and the problem was that there were a couple of sources. One, the water was was cool and refreshing. The other was like a hot springs. And so by the time you, you got the water down through this aqueduct, A, it had cooled down. It would be lukewarm. And B, it had picked up a whole lot of crud on the way. And and so you know the the thought is that drinking that kind of water you'd go black and you'd spit it out. Okay, um, that's one way to explain hot or cold. And then of course what you say is, cold is good because it's it's refreshing. Ice tea, wonderful. Uh, I noticed, by the way, iced coffee. I don't like it myself. I like really good coffee as hot coffee, but but I, I've never heard anybody order coffee lukewarm. They want it hot. They want it cold. Right? They don't want that in between stuff. So anyway, the theory is that in this in this water supply thing, it was either wonderful to get cold, ice cold, sort of refrigerated water, or nice hot water. The only problem is that hot water was mineral water, and I don't really think anybody would drink it anyway, but there you have it. That's the historical view. I, I'm, I'm inclined to look at this. Uh, I have been inclined to look at this in, in like a sine wave and, and like amplitude, and so, you know, if you had uh, you had low volume, you'd see this this little low thing, where if you had, the you know, these booming drums and all this stuff that they hand earplugs out to people too when they go to church, you know, you get a big, huge sine wave. Hot or cold? Yeah, up and down. You got the big amplitude to that. I personally think one of the elements in this is what I would call passion. Passion. I think this is a passionless church, and I think the hotter the cold is saying Here you've got these extremes. You've got, you've got a strong, you know, difference, distinction going on. And, and I think I can make this hold, but I'm, I'm going to cheat on myself and take you down to verse 19. He does not just say and repent. What is, what is the command to the church in verse 19? Be zealous and repent and I would contend because there are two other cases in revelation where this happens I would contend that he is saying repent by becoming zealous that is repent and regain the zeal that ought to be there for passionate Christians don't be wimps about your faith and don't have this low amplitude about how important your spiritual life and the spiritual life of others is. Get with it. There's an uncomfortable option that I want to toss in here, which I was disinclined to, to accept, but I, I got to put it before you anyway. What if he is actually, you got you to ask yourself, what is hot equal? What is cold equal? Do we not? It's, it's, if you take the amplitude picture, then hot or cold, both extremes are good, depending on what you want, hot or cold. Suppose hot is passionately following Christ, and cold is not passionately following Christ. I mean, really go in your own way. Live in your own life, living in rebellion with Him. Why would it be possible for our Lord to say, I would rather you were walking in open rebellion to me than to be lukewarm? I don't like this option, but I, but I, can't, I can't avoid it. I can't avoid thinking about it in this regard. Who does the most damage to the testimony of our Lord and his church? A person who is living in rebellion against God, who is not witnessing their faith, who is not identified with the church, who is just going their own rebellious way, who you can't tell from a just flat out pagan. Who is more damaging, that person or some mediocre go to church on Sunday Christian who says the right things, but who manifests by their passionless life. They don't give a flip about it. That that for me is at least an option. And I was thinking about this as a parent for our children or our grandchildren. You know, it's a tempting thought to want to have lukewarm children more than cold children, in that in that analogy, because they don't look so bad. They're not actively rebellious and whatever, but you have to say to yourself, and I'm thinking about now, I've got in my mind people here and elsewhere who have rebellious, walking the other way, maybe running the other way kids, and they're agonizing about it. And in one sense, I would say this. If this analysis happens to be correct, I would be encouraged by this. One, they're not being hypocrites. They're not Matthew 23 people, (laughs) you know, who Jesus calls hypocrites, you know, lays it up. They're not hypocritical. And it's very apparent when God shakes those people to the roots. It is very apparent. I'm not so sure but what. In one sense, for the sake of the gospel, it is better for someone who isn't going to follow Christ passionately to just blow it off until he lights a fire and warms them up. I'm going to leave that with you to think about, but at least it's it's a theoretical option. So, now we get to the diagnosis clearly stated. That's symbolic, hot, cold, and we've got to wrestle with the metaphors and try to figure out where that goes. But we don't have to wonder what it means in our context, folks. That was the warm-up and the puke part. That was just to get their attention. Now he says to them... In verse 17, because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Oh, they think they're doing well. They think that everything is cool and copacetic. They don't, they don't anticipate these strong words from our Lord. Because everything externally looks right. Now, think back in your minds to the Pharisaical system. Or if you want to go all the way back to Psalm 73, that's good too. Here's Asaph in Psalm 73, who basically says, you know, God promises to bless his people. So how come these people who are living the good life are people who are rebelling against God? How come the righteous people like me are, are, are suffering and doing without. It's the equation of your outward, physical, economic, social uh, lifestyle, and that if all is going well for you, in terms of your bank account, your retirement, your whatever it is, your employment, if all is going well, then God must be with me. And somehow, if it's not going well, God must not. That's why the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16 is a bomb. Because our Lord Jesus turns it upside down, and the rich man who had everything going his way is in hell. And the poor man who has everything against him is in heaven. What Jesus is trying to say is, if you assess how well things are doing by looking around, you're in a batch of trouble. By the way... The verse which precedes that in Luke 16, verse 15, he's been talking about money, and then there's this whole scoffing thing, verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to him and were scoffing at him, and he says, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Is that not what our text is saying? Is it not saying that in Laodicea, by men's, by a natural perspective of of analysis, this church is doing great? But God says, I know your hearts and you make me sick. It's just an illustration of the principle our Lord Jesus has already set down. Physically comfortable, spiritually sick. So our Lord's prescription in verses 18 through 20. Buy from me. I've heard several sermons on this uh, text, and and it almost immediately goes to Jesus paid it all. (laughs) And he did. He did. But I think we need to look a little more carefully. Buy means that it must cost you something, doesn't it? Buying means it costs you something. By the way, I suspect in that town with all of its prosperity, these guys were shoppers par excellence. They knew about buying and selling. But he says, you need to buy, but the point is from me. See, I think they had bought into their culture and they were heavy into it. In a sense, they were ready to build their bigger barns. But what our Lord is saying, the things that really matter, well, what are the streets of heaven paved with? Now, I realize, you know, it's only, it's mere gold. <laughs> but that guy on television says, that's the sound of security. Oh, yeah. Well, heavenly gold is. You buy your gold from God, friends, it's secure. Now, it may not do you a lot of good in this world, but it's sure going to be nice there. I think he's saying the things that you desperately need, the, the furnishings, if you want to put it in those terms, going back to Luke 16, the furnishings for heaven. If you want to send those on ahead, you've got to buy them from me. You won't get those at Costco or Sam's. You buy them from me. Because I'm the one who has pure gold, refined gold. I'm the one who has the white garments. That's the clothing of heaven, folks. If you're going to wear earth clothes, you're going to look kind of bad up there. And Isav. Now, it may be a, a double whammy. He may be working on this thing. I don't know how big Isav was in those days. I don't know that anybody really does. But... Here's the point. These people couldn't see very clearly. (laughs) Isn't that the point? They could not see how things really were. They had to see them through the eyes of the Lord Jesus, who is the faithful and true witness, the Amen. Now, the way He sees them is the way we should see them. Remember it says, you know, we shall not, we don't know what we will be like, but we will see Him as He is. So good eyesight is seeing things through Jesus. Not seeing things through the eyes of your culture. Motivation. The thing that amazes me about this text is that on the one hand, we, we were talking about it in our worship time this morning, and the one hand is, is, is in a sense the anger of God towards sin in the camp. And the other part, and outside of the camp, and the other part is... The fact that God deeply loves us. Now, I have to say that when I, there's a sense in which Laodicea's been the whipping boy church. Has it not? Everybody wants to whip on Laodicea. Nobody wants to be Laodicea, but everybody likes to whip on. And, and you're, you're kind of inclined to say, get a big stick for this one. Really lay it on. And what does he say? Those whom I love, I discipline He affirms his love and he says to them, I counsel you to buy these things. I have to tell you, my inclination is that I would have expected something far more harsh. But the reality is, Hebrews chapter 12, a father disciplines those whom he loves. And if there is anything clear in this text, it is A, he doesn't like what's going on in the church. But B, he loves his saints. And he is committed to bringing them to intimacy with himself. So, motivation, his gentleness, his love. Fellowship and participation in his blessings. Here's this thing, now we're down to Revelation 3.20. This door that's closed. I called this the church of the closed door because I called the church in Philadelphia the church of the open door. The closed part, in a sense, is the closure they've made, is it not? And so, what he's doing is—I mean, this this just takes the imagery of the previous church and flips it upside down. In 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 the church at Philadelphia, he is the great door opener. He's the great door keeper, and if he kicks the door down, it's down. And if he closes the door. It's closed, right? That's the way it is. I got to tell a story on Brady, on Brady's dad. We went to his dad's funeral, Sheriff of Marlin County. At that funeral service, there was a man in a wheelchair. He said to Brady, I'll never forget your father. I went to a little circus or something in the town. I bought my ticket, and I got to the gate, and my wheelchair was too wide for the gate. The guy wouldn't give me my money back. About that time your dad walked up, he sized up the situation, he kicked down the gate. That's Philadelphia, folks. That's Philadelphia, right? Now he's standing at the door. He's knocking and he's waiting for them to open it. He's invited them to have fellowship with Himself. Now, I've got a key for this text that I'm not going to tell you about today. But it comes from the New Testament. And I think it really gives us insight. But the point of this is the way to regain our zeal for Christ and for living for Him and for heaven is to delight in fellowship with Him. Some people would say, you know... Observing the Lord's Supper, that's okay from time to time. But it can get old and boring. I don't think the table with Jesus ought to ever be boring. And it seems to me it's part of what God uses in the life of his people to kindle the passion for living and walking with him. Well, I'll say a couple of things in conclusion, and I'll save up my other punches for later. First question, are we really shocked, are we really shocked by this text? I mean, when you think about God himself saying, you make me want to vomit, does does that bother us? No. I'm going to play some word games, and and I don't mean this personally too much. I I was thinking about the way that in Revelation the Lord talks about having his name and giving you a new name and the name of his city and, and in fact, what's in a name. (laughs) And I was thinking also about the trend today that churches have of rebranding themselves And so whatever, you know, such and such church, it's now got some different brand on it. Okay, I don't know whether that's good or bad. But it caused me to say, if I were a Presbyterian, I would read this text and I would say, does Jesus call this church Puke Presbyterian Church? If if I were a Baptist, I would be saying, or a brethren, or a Bible church, I would be saying, does our Lord call this barf Bible church? Now, now, I know that sounds cute and clever, but is that not what He's asking us to consider? Are we as a church that kind of group that makes Him sick? Because we've lost the passion We've lost the zeal. And now it's just ho-hum, grind along, bigger barns. And in the culture in which we live, everybody's patting us on the back. And in heavenly terms, we're broke. I think that's what he's saying. And I think we ought to be shocked. And if we don't read the text as shocking, then we've missed the point of what our Lord Jesus is saying. Which says to me, what we desperately need more than anything else is a divine perspective. And that perspective comes only from God's word. When you read those first two, uh, second chapter, and third chapters of Revelation, you get a divine perspective. Do you not? Here is the one who speaks from heaven and he assesses the reality So if you're the church at Smyrna and you're poverty stricken and you're kind of sniveling away about how hard it is, Jesus says you are rich. (laughs) If you're the church that thinks you're alive and you got a great reputation, Jesus might be saying, you're really dead or nearly dead. It's Jesus' perspective that we need to get and we don't get that Anywhere, but from His Word. And that's what not only the book of Revelation, but the whole Bible's about. Giving us a divine perspective of how healthy we are. And it may not be a pretty picture, folks. It may not be a pretty picture. But it's the first step. Our Lord, I'll leave you with this. Our Lord is the benchmark. For godly passion. One of the things I want to do is I read through the Bible and I get to the New Testament especially. Think about that in the Old too. What is Jesus passionate about? Or to do the hot cold thing. How passionate is our Lord? And passionate about what? And I would say to you, we better get passionate about the things that Jesus is passionate about. And I think he is very clear about those things. But we'll only see it here. We'll only see it in his word. Well, you may be here this morning, perhaps as someone who hasn't entered into fellowship with him. If our Lord Jesus is this tough on those people who believe in him, imagine what waits for those who have rejected the shed blood of the Lord Jesus and his sacrifice on behalf of the sinner. It's a scary place to be. Heaven is the place where accounts are eternally settled. Earth is the place where decisions must be made. I urge you, if you're outside of faith in Jesus Christ, trust him. Father, thank you for this text May we not lose the sense of seriousness and soberness of the way in which our Lord reacts to a church which has just flat lost its passion. Give us a zeal that comes from fellowship with you, from being deep in your word, from loving what you love and hating what you hate.